0: Well, I really love camping. I don't know uh, how many of you would say the same, but I want you to, for a moment, just to imagine that you, like me, love camping. I want you to imagine that a friend of yours offers up the chance to go out, just the two of you, on a quick camping excursion up into the canyons. Now, imagine also that you, uh, you get your car, you get all your stuff packed up, you head up into the canyon, find the trailhead, park your car, and you realize you're there. An hour or two early, prior to the time you're supposed to meet with your friend who's going to join you for that camping experience. Now, you know that the site where you will be setting up for that evening is only about 200 yards in from the trailhead. And so, knowing you've got plenty of time, you decide to scope it out. So, you head on out, you take a walk through the forest, and you're just alone. It's been a long time since you've just been alone out in the wilderness, and so you're soaking in. The The beauty of the forest and the fresh air, all the little rustling of the leaves and the snapping of the twigs, you're just, you're kind of just soaking it all in. It's a pretty enjoyable experience. So you slow down. 200 yards later, you arrive at the campsite and you're there and you realize, wow, I got here faster than I thought. So you sit down and maybe lean back against a log and just kind of enjoy soaking in nature. Well, it looks like the time is getting that your friend should be arriving soon. So you get up, you walk back to the... The parking area by the trailhead, and your friend pulls in. At that point, you get all the gear, you put your backpacks on, you're, now you're going to set up for your campsite. But just before you go right back onto that same trail, your friend says, whoa, just so you know, you need to be careful. There are lots of ferocious bears out here, and there have been several sightings this very day, and even maulings in this immediate area. And also, uh, the floor, the ground out here is literally like a carpet of rattlesnakes. Be very careful where you step. And now you go back out on same trail, second time. How does your second hike to the site differ from the first? Some of you might be like, I'm not, I'm not scared of bears or snakes. Okay, fine. But even if that's you, there's something different about your second trek, right? Practically speaking, in reality, what has changed? Nothing. It's the same trail. You just walked literally just an hour previous and you enjoyed the stroll. It was just a pleasure. But the second time out, whether you're the tough guy who's looking for the bear or you're the person scared that every stick on the ground might be a snake, That second hike through is quite a bit different than the first because of the warning from your friend that is ringing freshly in your ears. Your second hike in will be filled with potential anxieties. It is possible that after having read through Hebrews chapter 3 and almost all of 4, for you to have a similar kind of tension. You see, those two chapters are, are set right here in the flow as a warning to Christians. Don't lose heart. Don't fall away. Don't neglect your Savior, your God. Helps us reassess our focus by these warnings. And it's possible that because of the intensity of those warnings, we might need a little bit of encouragement by the time we get through those two chapters, and that's exactly what the author offers in the next couple of verses. You can kind of smell out the pastoral sensibilities of this author based upon what comes next. I want to read what comes next right now, and it's actually going to wrap up chapter four for a few verses, and then we're going to get about 10 verses into chapter five. If you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews 4, we're going to be right at the very end of that chapter, so verses 14 through 5, 10. I'm going to read these out loud. You can just listen along if you would like. This comprises one major section, or at least an intro to the next section, and as I read through this, know that we're only going to cover about three verses of this today, but to see it in context will be helpful for us. Let's do that, I'll pray, and then we'll dive back on in a few verses at a time. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for all the Bible. God, this morning I'm thankful that the warning passages... The gentle encouragement passages are all there present in the Bible for our good, for our benefit. Lord, I pray that we would take all these words seriously, that we would trust what you have to share for us, that it would apply to our lives in a way that would not just fill our heads with knowledge, but the kind of knowledge that would produce a greater love for you and for other people, a greater understanding of who we are and our need for you. And Lord, as we'll see today, Our ability to draw near to you, the uh, the possibility that we may draw near to the throne of grace and receive mercy and grace from you, Lord. We ask for your help as we do that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I'll put that first verse up on the screen for you so we can go through again. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Since we have a great high priest, this is how the, this passage begins, this has already been introduced to us by our author. In other words, the author back in chapter two has already told us that Jesus is our high priest. There he just kind of dropped it. Here he's going to kind of chew on that a bit and explain it. Hebrews chapter two, verse 17 says, therefore he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So Back then, we already see the author kind of drop the sin. Jesus is our high priest. Now, if you're here today and you're not a believer, you don't profess faith in Jesus, we want you to know, first of all, that we're really glad you're here. You're welcome to be here no matter what you believe. We hope that you're helped by what we have to share from the gospel. But one thing I also want you to know and want you to see is that we don't see ourselves very different from you, as some might think. Not only do we see all humanity as made in the image of God, but we also see all of ourselves equally in need of a Savior. That is, we're all sinners who are under the just punishment and wrath of God because of our sin. and We all then equally need Jesus and his perfect work and his death on the cross and his resurrection. But In addition to that, we share something else in common. None of us are Old Testament Hebrews. So when we get to a passage like this and a kind of a drop of a great high priest, a high priest, we need to look back further in history in order to understand it. So we're all going to do that together and we can take a look back into the Old Testament to see what is being talked about when we picture a great high priest. Now, if you were to ask a Hebrew, a New Testament person who was Hebrew blood, a Jew, an Israelite of old, if you were to ask that person where we might find the first high priest in the Bible, they would undoubtedly point to the book of Exodus. We're going to deal with Melchizedek in upcoming weeks. In fact, the first generation to experience worship under a high priest was the same generation that the author had been telling us about in chapters three and four. The same generation of people who were led out of slavery in Egypt by Moses, but would eventually distrust God and so refuse to enter the promised land. This is the very same generation that we are repeatedly warned to not imitate, lest we suffer a worse, eternal fate than they did. But before their decisive rebellion, shortly after leaving Egypt, God taught the people how they were to worship him this entire system of worship that was offered by God to the people when they were at the wilderness and they were at Mount Sinai it was to be led by a select group of priests the highest ranking of which was called the high priest moses tells us how God instructed him to establish this religious system and how to appoint these priests First, God gave the people laws, then he gave them a tabernacle, then he gave them priests. You need to understand something here for greatest clarity. There were 12 tribes of Israel. And we say Israel, we're actually referring to a person often when we say that, because Jacob of the Old Testament fame was renamed by God Israel. So when we say the 12 tribes of Israel, we literally mean the 12 sons, the 12 tribes that would descend from the person Jacob, Israel. And of these 12, one was especially notable because he was used by God to save the people during a period of great famine, long before the days of the Exodus. That man's name was Joseph. Joseph, the the famed Joseph of the amazing technicolor dream coat, Joseph. And God used him to literally not only rescue the rest of his brothers and his father, his family, but all the people in that region were able to survive because of what Joseph had done. So his father, Israel gave a special honor to Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, Jacob, Israel. He looked at those two sons. He says, I will now consider them my sons. And so rather than just looking, Joseph is my son and he's got some kids under him, he goes, no, those two are now my sons in your place. And that was a high honor. Now, now if you're doing the math, this would mean that there's 13 sons of Israel in the way they thought about it. That's exactly right. That's how it would have been thought of. But of those 13, God told Moses to take a census, a count. Let's see how many there are while we're out here. All all the people out in the wilderness at this time, after the Exodus days, take a census. But he says this in Numbers chapter 1, verses 47 through 50. Listen to what, what God says. But the Levites... That is the son Levi and all those who'd follow in him. That's one of those 13. But the Levites were not listed along with them by their ancestral tribe. For the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Only the tribe of Levi you shall not list, and you shall not take a census of them among the people of Israel. But appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony and over all its furnishings and over all that belongs to it, they are to carry the tabernacle and all its furnishings, and they shall take care of it and shall camp around the tabernacle. We're going to deal much more with tabernacle in upcoming weeks. But this meant that the descendants of Levi would not share in the same inheritance as the other tribes. In fact, it says this very clearly in Deuteronomy 10. At that time, the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord, to minister to him, and to bless in his name to this day. Therefore, Levi has no portion or inheritance with his brothers. The Lord is his inheritance, as the Lord your God said to him. Okay, so you picture in that, there were 12 plus plus the kind of minus one, plus two, so they thought of this 13 there. And so we look back in the Old Testament, we consider the 12 tribes of Israel, typically what we have in mind is the Levites accepted there are 12. Levites would be the bonus 13, maybe kind of in a way that Paul is the bonus 13th apostle. Now the first task given to these selected, separated out, separated out, Levites was to oversee the construction and the subsequent care of the tabernacle. God gave Moses very specific instructions for a tabernacle, which was virtually a a portable temple. It was prior to the time that they would enter into the promised land and God would say, that's the mountain where you put my actual temple. They would wander the desert and they'd have to bring their temple with them. And so rather than be made of stones... In God's good grace, he let them make it into a tent. And they carried this with them wherever they went. It was the first thing torn down, and they would go together in a very particular order of how it would go to the next location and be set up all over again. This tabernacle was at the literal center of Israel. Whenever they would camp out in the 40 years in the wilderness, that would be set up first, and everybody else would camp around that. There was even a particular order in which all the other tribes were supposed to surround said Tabernacle. This tent was comprised of an outer court. It was designed so that there could be sacrifices made inside of that outer court. There was an altar there for sacrifice. There was a wash basin for ceremonial washing by the priests before they enter into the the inner tent, the tent of meeting itself. And inside of this court was a structure. That was the, the tent of meeting itself, the house of the Lord amidst the people. The portable temple, right there. It was, it was smaller than this room. And it was comprised of two sections, very specifically instructed by God. One was called the holy place, where only priests were allowed to enter. And in that place, there was along the side wall, there was a, a, a table for the showbread, the bread that they would have before the Lord. On the other side was the lampstand that would give light to the space there. Then, it, then, then at the front of it, there would be an altar of incense that stood right in front of a giant floor-to-ceiling curtain, a veil that was designed to separate the holy place from the other room, the most holy place. And inside that most holy place is where they put the Ark of the Covenant, also known as the Mercy Seat. It was effectively seen as the throne of God on earth where he dwelt with his people. In future weeks, we're going to return back to the earthly tabernacle and talk more about that. But what you really need to understand today is that there was only one person in all of Israel who was authorized to ceremonially enter the most holy place, the high priest. You see, only priests could enter into the the, the tabernacle itself, the holy place, And only the high priest could enter into the most holy place. You see the the degrees of separation from God and his people. It was an image of their sin that kept them separate from him. And the chief duty of this high priest was to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. And the first official high priest of the people was Aaron, Moses' brother. Hebrews 5.1, we read it today. We'll get there next week, but let me read this again for you. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed. For what purpose? To act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. You see, that was his role. That was what he was supposed to do. Now, in order for that high priest to offer those sacrifices on that mercy seat, bring them before the mercy seat, he had to pass through. The veil, that floor-to-ceiling curtain. He had to pass through it and stand before the throne of God. And this is what we see of Jesus in this verse. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Just as the high priest had to pass through the veil, the curtain that separated God from men, Jesus passed through the heavens, the ultimate curtain that separates God from. From men. Now Jesus passed through the heavens twice, did he not? Once at the beginning of his earthly life, his incarnation, and again at the end of his earthly ministry, at his ascension, when he goes back up to be with the Father. So, which is meant here? Which which passing through the heavens is he meaning here? I think it almost certainly means after his death. One reason I think that is because in Chapter 2, verse 9, it says, we see him, Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So that verse seems to say that the kind of glory and honor that Jesus is crowned with now is a kind that he has as a result of his death. It also might be helpful to note that the high priest was not permitted to enter the most holy place until he had first presented the sacrifice for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. So he had to make a sacrifice before he was allowed to even enter, to pass through. Sacrifice, pass through. And so Jesus, presenting himself as the perfect sacrifice, I think then passed through the heavens. And it is in light of this sacrifice and subsequent entrance into the true throne room in heaven that we can hold fast our confession. What does it mean to hold fast our confession? Well, the same same language is used in chapter 10 of Hebrews. I'll just read that for you. Hebrews says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful hold fast the confession. What kind of confession? Confession of our hope in something, something outside of ourselves. If you think of confession in the New Testament, you might, as my mind went to, might think of Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 10. Look at this. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart One believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. This is the profession of faith that makes a person a Christian. That's the confession. So we can hold fast our confession, i.e., we can persist in our faith. We can heed the warnings previously given right here in Hebrews because Jesus has cleared the way for us to have peace with God. He has restored our relationship with God. As we read the warnings in chapter 3 and 4, they're pretty intense. They spent weeks on them. and If you weren't here for that, the, the author draws on an Old Testament passage written by David, King David of David and Goliath fame. He seizes hold of that idea, and he he points back even further from David, even further to this wandering Israelite days, and say, don't be like those people who would not trust in God. They saw mighty works and wonders and miracles, and yet they refused to trust in God, and they then lost their opportunity to enter into the promised land. They all died in the wilderness instead of going where God had originally planned for them to go. As we read the warnings, we might fall into the trap of thinking that our perseverance is all about us. Don't be like them. Okay, don't do it. Okay, don't do that. Okay. Muster up the strength. Harness your own cunning. to Keep yourself from doing that. But these verses here help us to see that we fix our eyes not on ourselves, but on Jesus. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. You do not have a high priest that's unable to sympathize. He can sympathize. He's able to do that. Jesus knows what it is like to be human, unlike an angel. And the reason I say that is because most of chapter 1 is used to make the case Jesus is not an angel. He's greater than the angel's. And then in chapter 2, he uses most of his energy to make it clear that although Jesus is greater than the angels, he descended to become fully, completely, like one of, it, one of us, in every respect, so he can become a great high priest. That, that's what he dropped that line in there back in chapter 2, to make it clear. A person could not be a high priest unless they were human, and that might, might seem like it should be obvious to us, but he makes it clear that it's not possible any other way. Don't let this point get lost on you. It might be easy to forget that Jesus was a real person who relates to us. You read history stories? Look back there. The person feels so distant. It's like, I can't relate to that. It's like, I'm reading a book. That person had no idea I'd ever exist. You just have this lack of not only relationship, but then the, the span of history. And the differences in culture and language and time might make you just feel distant from that person. That can happen if we read the Bible and see it as it is, historically accurate and telling us of historical events. But if we let it just sit there and forget, A, he relates to us today, and B, he really, really does understand the weakness of being human. Your problems are not alien to Jesus. There is no category of struggle that you could endure that he doesn't understand experientially. Now, not, not just we could play the game, well, he knows everything because he's God, so you know, yes, amen. But he knows it in a way that is of experience. Notice I said every category, not, not that every possible category. Thing God Jesus probably doesn't understand what it feels like to uh, have your phone run out when you're, your battery when you're talking. Well, no, we mean all the categories of human struggle. He understands, and while he struggled through, by, by, by struggled was was faced with temptations all around the world. He did so without sin. It means perfection. This passage highlights two things that qualified a priest. This is this passage, chapter four, the beginning of chapter five here. Two things that qualify a priest. First, he had to be fully human. And again, like I said, that must be obvious to us, but here the author does not take it for granted, makes it clear. The need for a high priest to be human is not just a matter of biology, but it's required in order for the priest to fully identify with those for whom he offers sacrifices. But the second qualification was that he would be Chosen, selected by God. We deal with this more next week. But these are the two qualifications that Jesus shares with the high priests of the Old Testament. Fully human, check. Chosen by God, check. But Jesus is far greater than those priests. And these verses tell us at least three ways that he is distinct. And, each, and when I say distinct, I probably shouldn't go like this distinct. I should go like this distinct. First, he's the son of God. Did you see that in verse 14? Since then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. You see, he could have paused there, right? Jesus, you know, Jesus. Okay, let's move on. But he goes, no, Jesus, the Son of God. This is the first place in Hebrews where we see that term, Son of God. He's argued to be the Son multiple times already. But Son of God, like that, right here, make it clear. Yeah, that guy, the same one that I spent all that energy when I wrote Hebrews 1, this author could say, to show you he's greater than an angel, that guy. No Old Testament priest could say that about himself. Jesus is the Son of God. The second way that he's distinct, this way distinct from the other Old Testament high priests, he passed through, oh, not just that little veil, the heavens. Jesus did not merely pass through the earthly veil. He passed through the actual one. In fact, Jesus passed through the veil that that earthly curtain was supposed to represent. More on that later in Hebrews. The third and perhaps most critical for today, distinction between Jesus and the high priest of the Old Testament is that he was sinless. That, that's what he's getting at right here in this verse. That's why this verse exists. To make it clear that we would not think that Jesus is just like all those other high priests in every respect. No, he's in, he's like them as a brother in every respect, but not in activity because he was We know named high priests of the New Testament. You don't have to think back hard to remember the interaction that Jesus had with high priest Caiaphas. There was the real high priest being mocked by the earthly disqualified high priest. Jesus himself is perfect and sinless in every regard. In fact, one of the sins that could be squarely placed on the shoulders, on the, the guilt of the high priest in Jesus' day, is that his sin was rebuking the real high priest. Jesus was sinless. You know, the Old Testament priest had to offer sacrifices for himself first. It's really fascinating. He's not only considered associated with the rest of the body of Israel, He first has to make sure he's consecrated. His sins are dealt with. Then and only then does he come forward and then present the sacrifices for the rest of Israel. Isn't that crazy? First he has to consecrate himself. Then he moves on to atone for the sins of the rest of the people. This is a crucial distinction. Jesus does not need to find something purer or higher in value than himself, to offer a sacrifice for himself. Obviously, he could not find something purer or higher in value than himself. But to the point here, he is the sacrifice and the sacrificer. He doesn't need to do that first step of atoning for his own sins and then atoning for the rest. His one-time singular sacrifice was for the sins of everyone other himself, Jesus, is perfectly sinless. 16 says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is the imperative here. We're told, let let us hold fast to our confession. That's one command. Imperative. The thing you're supposed to do. Hold fast to your confession. That's already said in verse 14. But verse 16, this is the imperative here. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. That's, That's commandment language. Let us do that. Draw near to the throne of grace. The Old Testament Day of Atonement was perhaps the most significant day in the annual cycle for the Hebrew. It was the day in which the Old Testament high priest would offer up sacrifice for the sins of the people. Now, if you were to study through the, the, the sacrifices offered in that system, you'd find that when a person does something wrong, realizes a sin, it says realizes a sin, he's to offer a sacrifice. This could be ongoing. This could be kind of perpetual throughout the year. But the Day of Atonement was to both corporately deal with the sins of all the people and, interestingly, deal with the sins the people didn't realize they committed. In other words, the holiness of God is so great that God demanded that the people would atone for the sins they didn't even know about. So if you were were to imagine the illustration, that a person were to have muddy boots walking into a nice house with white carpet. Why anyone would have white carpet? Beyond me. But imagine a person walking in like that. And the person who looks down and notices, oh my goodness, I got got to wash my boots off before I come in. Okay. Hopefully the carpet stays cleaner. But what about the person who just didn't notice and just walked in and tracked the carpet, tracked the, the mud all over the floor? Just because they didn't notice doesn't mean it's not muddy on the floor. Anyone with kids knows this. Watch out for the puddle. I'm watching it. So just because you don't notice that you dragged mud into the holy home doesn't mean you haven't. And that home needs to be atoned for. That's the way the people thought about the tabernacle, that that place where God would dwell with the people. It was the place that needed to be atoned for. Is that crazy? The sins of the people were seen as stains sticking to the objects that needed to be atoned for. Thus you shall atone for the tabernacle and the altar. The sins of the people affected. The way that they viewed God and his holiness there had to be dealt with. And so on this day, the end of their year, the way they count their years, they'd have this day where the high priest would offer sacrifice. And it's an incredible picture. We'll walk through more of in upcoming weeks. But what's significant is that once the Day of Atonement event took place, once it was finished, do you know what the Old Testament said about the people? This is awesome. Watch this. Leviticus 16.30. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. Isn't that awesome? It's the happiest day of the year, the day after the day of atonement. You start fresh. All of your sins are cleansed. if we could be considered cleared of our guilt, if people, any kind of people, could be considered cleared of their guilt of sin before the Lord by this kind of offering from the hands of a sinner, how much more can we be confident now that Jesus has made the way? And what will you receive as you draw near? Exactly what you need the most. Mercy and grace. That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. God will help us when we need Him. And what is the time of need when you find your faith wavering? When the obstacles from entering into God's rest seem insurmountable to you. When you run the numbers and and the giants in the promised land seem too big, when you getting in there seems impossible for weak little me, that's when we need help. That's our time of need. What you most need during those times is to be reminded of the grace and mercy of God. Grace is not merely operative at the moment of your conversion. It's a perpetual need for the Christian. And not like gas in a lawnmower, that we only draw near on the infrequent occasion that we need to refuel. How about if we use this as a rule of thumb? How often should we draw near? How about if you and I need to draw near to the throne of grace as often as we sin? How about that? About even more, as often as we are sinners, this is so different than the kind of advice that we expect to receive in the world, isn't it? What's the encouragement or advice that we might expect to hear from someone who, who doesn't have Jesus? If you, were to, if you were to say to someone in the world, "I just I feel like such an unworthy sinner," I feel like scum, or using language from David in the Old Testament, like a worm, like Job in the Old Testament. Like a creepy, crawling thing. What do, you, what do you think What do you think the world's advice is to a person who shares that? "I'm so unworthy. It's to make you feel good. Oh, you're not so unworthy." Oh, you're, you're, oh, no, you're not, so, that's, you're not so bad. Anyone would have done what you did in that situation. No, you're, you're a good person. Isn't that the, the kind of advice we'd expect to hear from out in the world? In fact, you and I might be compelled to kind of give that counsel sometimes from from certain impulses, just trying to be helpful for someone who feels so downtrodden. Oh, no, no, you're not so bad. It's really not that, that rough. But Christians, truly, we respond differently. We do. You're right, you're unworthy. Yes. Oh, you and I both, we are sinners. We don't deserve any good things. None of that we deserve. You're right, those are sins. Oh, how awful you did that. But God is gracious. God is merciful. Draw near to the throne of grace that you can receive, that you may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. That's what we say to one another. That's the kind of encouragement and exhortation that Christians offer to one another. Not, you're so good, it's okay. God won't even count that sin. Listen, no, if there's any no counting of sin, it's because it's been counted and placed on Jesus and punished in him and not you. What graciousness in God! In other words, the response that we give as Christians, the response that I want you to have and to think about and to consider for yourself when you're feeling unworthy is not to feel more worthy in and of yourself, but to not look at yourself, but to look at Jesus who passed through the heavens. Our great, merciful, and faithful high priest and say, I I need mercy. I need grace. And then receive it. If you ever been through seriously rough times? The kind that you'd, you... You don't even know how you'd counsel somebody else through it. And you made it through to the other side, even if just barely, just barely intact. And you still believe... God has mercifully provided the help you needed in your time of need. That's that's how you got there. That's how you survived. How did I get through this battle? It's not because you're good at dodging bullets. It's not because your armor is so fit and good that you can repel any attack from the enemy, the world, or even your own flesh from within. It's because he has given you grace, mercy in that time of need. That's why when Christians come through even the darkest times, we celebrate, we worship. Have you ever noticed how many songs, Christian hymns, especially the old hymns, talk about things with this morose, almost sorrowful, somber about how rough life can be, how difficult it can be? Why? Because it is, and it can be. And we don't make it through by pretending that's not the case. But instead, when we get through the dark tunnels, we look back and go, oh, His grace is amazing. That's why. Those moments, those seasons of difficulty will be used by God to produce a kind of worship that you would not give him unless you endured those difficulties. You know, I said this before, there's, we're going to worship God for forever in heaven. And some people have a boring view in their mind of what that looks like. If there's anything boring about your view of heaven, you do not understand heaven. And that's Okay you need to read the word what it says about it. heaven utter unending joyful bliss praising and worshipping God but there is a kind of worship you will not be able to give God for billions and billions of years and that is worship in the midst of pain you're not going to have pain in heaven so you're not going to be able to worship him in the pain is it not glorious when you or others that you know worship God in tears of heartbreak and physical and medical and all kinds of different pain. In those moments, God is giving us just enough to make it through, just enough persevering strength and, and glue that sticks that to you. Our response ought to be worship because we are, we are, we are then receiving mercy and finding grace to help us in that time. Not, if you make it through this rough time, on the other side, it's grace and mercy for you. There's a kind of goodness in that. But God's grace and God's mercy is there in the depths. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted, and he saves those who are contrite of spirit. In the midst of our difficulties, he provides in the time of need. And who gets the glory when you and I persevere? Is he standing on the other end of the tunnel? Come on, you can do it. You can do it. Come on, come on. Is that the kind of encouragement? Get up, get up. Come on, you can do it. Maybe an element of that. You receive from Christian brothers and sisters, "I, I can't do anything else but pray for you and stand next to you and just try to encourage you, try to help you up. The kind of mercy, the kind of grace given to us in the time of need is right there in the dark, in the tunnel with us. How can that happen? Because Jesus already went through that tunnel. He knows the whole way out. He passed all the way through that tunnel and the darkest of all of them. We have a great high priest. He is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. And he will lead us to the throne of grace in our time of need that we receive grace and mercy. Closing applications. First, confess Jesus. Confess he is our great high priest. He, and by his sacrifice alone, can we have peace with God? No other way. There's no back door into the holy of holies. In fact, over and over again in the the accounts in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy tell us that if somebody who's not supposed to be in there, not the high priest, after his sacrifice, offer for sin, going in, tries to enter in, he'll be put to death. There's no other way in. It's only through Jesus. He is our great high priest. Confess him as that. Believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, and you will be saved. Second application, hold fast to that confession. Remember back to it. Think about that. He, he's not just, oh, yeah, he was our high priest that time that we needed him back then before we believed. No, he's, he's our high priest right now. Why is it that we don't need any more high priests? Because we already have one. The position is filled. And Last, draw near to the throne of grace in humility, with love for God, crawl crawl into the throne room. But do so fully expecting that you will receive the mercy and the grace that you need in your time of need. Let's pray. Lord, I can't possibly know all of the ways that this needs to be applied and spoken to in the hearts of the people who will hear this. So I am asking, Father, that you would send your spirit to take this word that you've written for us and plant it in the hearts of those who hear this, that they would receive encouragement, as I think this is here for. That's why you had this written. So Lord, let it be an encouragement that we need. Let us hold the warning and the encouragement at the same time. Let us not just try to muscle through the difficult times, but to cry out to you. Let us, Lord, when we feel guilty and stained by our own sin, as we ought to every day, that it would not keep us from coming to your throne of grace, but it would drive us to your throne of grace. Lord, let us never think that we are so good that we should, we should uh, come in on our own merit. And let us not think the opposite, that we're too filthy and dirty to enter in at all. Lord, help us to see that because Jesus, our great and merciful high priest, has entered, all of our sins have been cleansed, washed away from us. We may enter boldly with the kind of gratitude of seeing Jesus as our great high priest. Lord, help us to see this clearly. Help us to share this with people who carry this burden. Lord, right now, I believe that there are people amongst us who are just needing that encouragement, needing to be reminded that you will help them persevere to the end. You will give them mercy and grace right when they most need it. Lord, help us to be an encouragement to those. If we need that, help us to be reminded by this. And Lord, let us give you glory and worship and praise in the midst of those difficulties. And we pray all this in Jesus' name.